Please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. So turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. We're beginning a new section of Scripture here as we look at Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. Please stand with me as we read Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 26 together. We'll be looking at this passage this morning and next week, Lord willing, as well. Verse 17 says, And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Verse 20, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets." But woe, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. May God encourage and strengthen us through his word this morning. You may be seated. And Father, as we look more closely at your word this morning, we are aware of our great need for your Holy Spirit to work within us, to change us, to cause us to love you more fully and to forsake the things of this world and this kingdom. We pray for your blessing upon us, and we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. When I was in college, I took a course that required us to meet as a small group outside of that larger class. And we met together as a group in the apartment of one of the members of our group, and we were kind of seated around the table before we actually began studying, making small talk, and I, I turned to this uh, young lady whose apartment we were in, and I, I asked her, I said, so uh, what are you planning on doing with your, your college education? What are you studying? What are you, you going to do in life? And she looked at me, she said, well, I'm, I'm focusing on sports medicine, and, and I don't remember the ex- her exact wording, the exact word of the conversation, but something, she said something like, and, and I'm going to work for the Dallas Cowboys. I said, kind of struck me because she didn't say, I'd like to work for the Dallas Cowboys, or maybe I'll work for a professional football team. She says, and I'm going to work for the Dallas Cowboys. I said, well, it's good to have goals. Okay, good. We continued talking, and we're getting ready to start studying. She realized that she had forgotten a book, and so uh, the rest of the group stays there, and she gets up, and she goes into, through the living room, opens up her door, and as she opened up her door, I noticed that uh, her walls were covered in posters, and there was one subject in all of those posters, Troy Aikman, the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys. She came, got her book, shut the door, came back and sat down. I said, I bet I can guess your favorite football player. She said, oh, yeah. I said, you like Troy Aikman, don't you? She said, sure. I said, now, and I'm just kidding at this point. I said, now, does your desire to work for the Cowboys have anything to do with Troy Aikman? She looked at me, deadly serious. She said, yes. 
I'm going to work for the Dallas Cowboys. I'm going to meet Troy Aikman. He's going to fall in love with me, and we're going to get married. <laughs> Very taken aback, I said, well, like I said, it's good to have goals. It's very uncomfortable. Why? Because this is a very delusional idea, right? The idea that you would uh, get hired by a professional football team seems a little out there, and that you would uh, meet a Troy Aikman, and no, not arguing with the choice at all. Uh, you'd meet Troy Aikman, he would fall in love with you, and, and that would lead to happiness. All of those steps seemed a little bit delusional to me. Let me suggest to you this morning that most of us in this room are operating in a delusional state as we think about what's going to bring us happiness. Now, hers was more obvious because it's a little countercultural. It's not a normal thing for someone in our culture to, to do to, to kind of stalk a celebrity. Maybe that's too, no, it's not too strong. Um, some of us are operating under the similar delusion, but it's, it's culture-wide. Our entire culture believes that by pursuing physical pleasures, material things that we can achieve happiness. That's delusional. It's not true. It's not right. The American dream in our culture today is defined exclusively in material terms. The American dream is often nowadays defined as owning a home, achieving financial security, having a, a, a big retirement account. That's, that's what we dream. That's what we pursue. That's how we define the, the pursuit of happiness in our culture. It's wrong. In Jesus' day, there were also theories about how one would pursue happiness, how one would achieve a blessing, be considered fortunate. In Jesus' day, people who were wealthy or people who were happy or had prestige were considered blessed, fortunate, privileged. What Jesus does in the passage that we're looking at this week and next is he turns his, his culture's understanding on its head. He says, look, the people in life, in culture that you think are blessed are actually in danger. And the people that you might see as the, the lowest part, the least happy in society, are actually blessed and privileged. He turns their understanding on their head. He says, look, what you think is black is actually white. What you think is white is actually black. What you call a dog is in reality a cat. What you call a cat is in reality a dog. He turns their understanding on its head in terms of who is blessed and who should be pitied because they're in danger. What I want us to do as we look at this passage this week and next is come to this understanding. This is kind of the central idea I want you to keep in your mind as we look at that, this text. It's this. Happy are you. Happy are you who find your satisfaction in Christ and his kingdom. Happy are you, in Jesus' day and in our day, happy are you who find your satisfaction in Christ and his kingdom. This is the main idea that we're going to look at as we look at verses 17 through 26, specifically verses 20 through 23 as they talk about blessing, and then verses 24 through 26 as it talks about the woes. And it's interesting, the Beatitudes in verses 20 through 23 exactly parallel the woes in verses 24 through 46, uh, 26. 
And so what we're going to do this morning is look at the first two blessings and their counterparts in the woes in verses 24 and 25. And more specifically this morning, remember, main idea that I want us to get this week and next, happy are you who find your satisfaction in Christ and his kingdom. The more specific application for us this morning as we look at these first two blessings and their woes is this, happy are you who find your satisfaction in Christ and his kingdom and have abandoned the quest to find satisfaction in this kingdom's material pleasures. Happy are you this morning who find your satisfaction in Christ and his kingdom and have abandoned the futile quest to find satisfaction in this kingdom's material pleasures. That's the focus of the text that we're looking at this morning. Let me give you a little bit of the setting of the, of the text in verses 17 through 20, or 17 through 19. So go ahead and turn there if you're not there already. It says this in verse 17, remember the context here, Jesus has just appointed his 12 disciples, he's had his disciples come to him, and he's from among that larger group of disciples, he's selected 12 men. Verse 17 says, and he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. In the first part of verse 20, he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, and then he begins giving these beatitudes. Now, what we see here is a couple things. First of all, notice that Jesus has been up on the mountain with his 12 disciples. He's coming down, and he's standing on a level place, on, on a plane, P-L-A-I-N. He's standing on this plane, and his disciples come to him, the, the larger group of disciples. In fact, there's kind of three groups of people here. He's coming down with his 12 disciples, so that's one group, the 12 disciples. Then there's a larger group of disciples, and then there's a, a larger group, a larger multitude. And the larger multitude is coming to Jesus in order to be uh, uh, healed, to have demons cast out. And so that's what's taking place there in the context as he begins to give this sermon. Now, you'll notice as you go through Luke chapter 6 over the next few weeks together, you'll notice that there are some striking parallels with another section of Scripture, Matthew's, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. In Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, we have what we call the Sermon on the Mount, okay, where Jesus goes on a mountain and he's talking to his disciples. Here we have what we call the Sermon on the Plain, and I believe that Luke chapter 6 and the sermon in Matthew chapters 5 through 7 are, are different messages that Jesus gives. I believe this for several reasons. One, the, the location, one's on a mountain, one's on a plane. Uh, the other is the audience. In Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, the audience seems to be smaller. He uses some different tenses as he talks. He also has slightly different subject matter that he's addressing. Now, even though I believe that these are different messages, we obviously see some parallel themes. Remember, Jesus taught on a variety of occasions, and often he's, he's talking about the kingdom of God and kingdom living. Whenever Jesus talks, it's reasonable to assume that he uses some similar phrases. And so I believe what we see in Luke chapter 6 is him describing some things very similar to the, similarly to the way that he describes them in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. It's much like I think of uh, my own teaching ministry. Sometimes I have the opportunity to go and preach at, at Bethany Baptist Church. And when I do that, I'll often use a text that I've preached here at Bethany Community, and I'll use some of the same phrases, and I'll, I'll use some of the same illustrations. 
Uh, I'll use some of the lame jokes that I use here as well. But the application will be tailored toward that specific context, okay? And that's what I think Jesus is doing as well. There's some different, different uh, phrases and different applications that he makes in Luke that are different than what he's saying in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. So I believe this is a unique address that we see here in Luke chapter 6. This first section that we're looking at, where we see the Beatitudes, that phrase Beatitudes comes from the Latin word beatus, which means blessed or, or happy. Okay? Well, let's go ahead and look at the first Beatitude and its accompanying woe in verse 20, and then we're also going to look at verse 24. And It's this, blessed are you who are poor. Look at verse 20. It says, after he lifts up his eyes on his disciples, notice he's talking there to his disciples, that's the audience. It's not the 12 disciples, but that larger group of disciples. And he says this, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And then the accompanying woe in verse 24, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Let's, let's first look at the blessing in verse 20. Blessed, that word blessed means fortunate. It means happy. It means to be privileged. Happy, fortunate are you, talking to his disciples, who are poor. Now, when he says blessed or happy or privileged are you who are poor, he doesn't mean simply this. Look, if you want to be happy, just divest yourself of all the physical things that you own, and then you'll be happy. If happiness were that easy, all we need to do is just get rid of all the things that we own, and then we could be guaranteed happiness. That's not what he's talking about here. Let's consider what Jesus is saying in context of Scripture's teaching regarding poverty. Let's do a little theology of the poor, uh, not poor theology, but theology of the poor. Uh, Exodus chapter 22, we see a truth that we've talked about before here. In Exodus chapter 22, uh, we see that God has special attention that he shows to those who are impoverished. In Exodus chapter 22, uh, verse 25, he says, if you lend any money to any of my people with you who is poor, notice he calls them my people, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. In the verse, of verse 27, he says, And if he cries to me, that is, if the poor person cries to God, I will hear why, for I am compassionate. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, again, we see God's special attention upon those who are poor. In verse 7 of Deuteronomy 15, it says, If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. Verse 9, take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And he talks about turning their, their heart against their, their brother who's poor. He says, uh, verse 10, you shall give to him freely. Your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work. End of verse 11, you shall open wide your hand to your brother to the needy, and to the poor in your land. And so as we look at the poor in Scripture, the first thing that's important for us to remember is that God has a special compassion for those who are impoverished. I want to show you a couple of psalms to you that also tell us something very interesting about the poor in Scripture. A psalm 22. It's the first one I want us to look at. In Psalm 22, listen to what it says about the poor person. This is very important. He says this about, about poor people. In Psalm 22, verse 24, it says, God has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted and has not hidden his face from him, but listen, has heard 
when he cried to him. That is, when the poor person cries out to God in his poverty, God listens to him. We see the same thing in Psalm 34. Psalm 34 verse 6 says, This poor man cried, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Psalm chapter 40, we see the poor person crying out to God again. Psalm 40, verse 17, the psalmist says, As for me, I am poor and needy, but the, poor, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. And then uh, Psalm 72. In Psalm 72, verse 12, he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. Here's the point. In Scripture, what we see about the poor is that those who have been divested of their physical resources often respond by crying out to God. When God removes all the, the physical possessions that a person has, the response of the pious poor in Scripture is to cry out to God. We see this over and over again. When God takes away physical resources from people, the pious respond by crying out to God, recognizing the need that has always been there. So, for example, in Exodus chapter 2, the people of Israel become slaves, and what do they do? They, they cry out to God, and what does God do? God hears them. Hezekiah, whenever Hezekiah, said, whenever Hezekiah is told that he's going to die, what does Hezekiah do? He lays on his bed. There's, nothing, there's no fighting he can do. There's no wealth that he can, can uh, exchange in order to, uh, to gain his health back. What does he do? He turns in his bed, and he, and he cries out to God, and God hears him. In a few weeks, we're going, or who knows how long, it's Luke chapter 18, that could be quite a, quite a ways ahead for us as a church, but in Luke chapter 18, we see the blind beggar Bartimaeus, and what does blind, what does blind Bartimaeus do? He's begging. He has no physical resources. He hears that Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Verse 38 says, and he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Everyone says, hey, be quiet. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Here's what the point is. People who have been divested of their physical resources, who have become impoverished, have no other recourse but to call upon God. And so Jesus says, privileged, happy, fortunate are you who are poor because yours is, present tense, the kingdom of God. Those among his disciples who have been divested of their physical resources, are fortunate because it will cause them, if they respond rightly, to depend more upon Christ. They possess his kingdom through faith. Think about advertising. Reading a book uh, by Malcolm Gladwell, I've mentioned it before, but he talks about some, some advertisers that he, that he interviews for this book that he's writing. These advertising, this advertising consultancy agency found out this. They found that if they took a 7-Up can and they added 15% more yellow just, just to the can, that people would drink it and would uh, say that it had more of a lemony flavor. They found that if they took a Hormel meat packaging and they placed a little parsley sprig in between the R and the M of the word Hormel, 
that people would report that the meat tasted fresher. Do you know you can charge 10 to 15 cents more for an ice cream container if you put it in a circular container than a rectangle one? People will pay 10 to 15 cents more for a circular container of ice cream. These same guys, found, or similar research found that if you take uh, Coca-Cola and you take a Pepsi and, and you try to get, do kind of a taste test to see which one tastes better, people who say they prefer one will often prefer the other. But here's kind of the, here's kind of the really crazy thing. Not only can people not often distinguish the taste between the two, like which one is which, but if you do this, if you take three glasses and you pour Pepsi into two of those glasses and you pour Coca-Cola into the third glass, most people will not be able to tell you which two are the same. In fact, one out of three people can guess. In other words, the same as just randomly guessing. Okay. What's the point? Advertisers really mess with our heads, right? <laughs> they know how to get in there and make us think things about, about reality, about lemon flavors and how fresh things are. You know what poverty is? You know what poverty is? Poverty is like a, a great big light that shines through the smoke of materialism. And once all that material, those material things have been, have been removed from you, what, do you, what, do, what do left do you have? It's a clarifying light that allows you to say, look, man, this stuff, it doesn't really matter. I need God. My satisfaction shouldn't be in these things that can be taken away so easily. My satisfaction should be in God. Now, beloved, don't miss the woe in verse 24. This is to you. Most people in this room, if not all of us, are the wealthy. He says, Jesus says this, don't minimize what Jesus is saying here. This is not me saying this, this is Jesus in verse 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. This word woe is, in Greek, it's uai. It's an interjection. Alas, danger, watch out. It's, it's, it's pity. You're pathetic. You're in grave danger because you are rich. A few weeks ago, my family and I were on the square in Washington, that, you know, that circular, that, that circle of death there. <laughs> we were crossing the street, and as we crossed the street, uh, one of our sons was just a, just a few feet ahead, ahead of us, kind of running a little bit, not, not, uh, not dangerously, we thought, but he kind of starts to run, and as he, as he runs, a car starts whipping around that circle and getting ready to turn right, right where he is, okay? What did I do? What did I do? I scream out, stop! Eight cars in the block, stop right where they are. <laughs> now, why would I do that? Because I, I saw this impending danger. I, I saw my, my son not aware of this car coming. This car was off in la-la land, and I saw, that, I saw my son, you know, in, in real danger, our culture is in real danger. And by our culture, I don't just mean North American culture. I mean Bethany Community Church is in real danger. We are wealthy. Jesus' words to you are, woe, alas, danger to you who are rich. Why? Because you've received your consolation, your comfort in full. Those who have taken their comfort in the riches of this world who have found their satisfaction not in Christ, but in 
Material things are in real danger. You're in danger of finding that that which you've pursued is all that you're going to get. Verse 24, you received your comfort in full. I want to give a, a little bit of an illustration here and be careful. I want this morning to commend poverty to you. I want to encourage you to lead a lifestyle of lack. It's a message you're not going to hear very often. And again, I don't mean you're not going to hear it very often just in the wider culture, but even in the church, it's not a message we hear very often. I'm very concerned about the voices that claim to be speaking for the evangelical church when it comes to a theology of finances. I told Whitney last night one of the specific illustrations I'm about to give, and she audibly said, ooh. <laughs> so I, I want to be careful. Don't, don't hear more than I'm saying. Let me specific, kind of little level some specific criticisms. One of the major voices that I hear speaking to evangelical Christians when it comes to finances is, is Dave Ramsey, okay? Beloved, let me tell you, Dave Ramsey, while he offers some great practical suggestions, does not have a Christ-centered philosophy of how to view your finances. You know what his catchphrase is? Beat, de beat debt and build wealth. You know what? I would just as soon encourage a person to get cancer as to get wealthy. Cancer destroys the physical body. Jesus says, woe to you who are wealthy because wealth can destroy your soul. If you have a lot of resources, which most of us in this room do, you need to understand that they can eat away at our soul and we must be very careful. Dave Ramsey gives kind of seven steps that a person should go through. And it begins with, you know, saving aside like $1,000. And then step two is, you know, paying off some credit cards. And I can't remember all the steps, but it's not until you get to step seven. Step seven is the last step of the seven-step process. And it says, build wealth and give. In other words, become very wealthy so you can give. Beloved, that is not a biblical understanding of finances. <laughs> Now, God is going to cause some of us in this room to be wealthy, some, most of us in this room to be wealthy, some of us to be even more wealthy than others. We shouldn't see that as something to pursue. We should see it as a, a grave obligation that God has placed upon some of us and something that can stand in our way of seeking our satisfaction in Christ alone. Let me give you this application as we think about blessed are you who are poor. It's this. You're fortunate. You're fortunate if you're seeking your security in Christ's kingdom. I'm not saying it's wrong to save money. I'm not saying it's wrong to save money for college or for retirement, but understand this. If you believe that your security is found in having a healthy 401k, you are in serious danger. And if your desire to build up material wealth for yourself is causing you to miss out on opportunities to give to God's kingdom, you're in real danger. Let me take a little bit of a, a side note here just to address a, a related issue, but kind of a little bit of a tangent. Let me just give you some specific cautions as you pursue your living here in our North American culture. 
here's some ways that you can become wealthy that are wrong. <laughs> ways to acquire wealth for yourself, to, to earn a living, so to speak, acquire wealth that should greatly concern you, you should repent of. You should be greatly concerned, first of all, if your wealth was obtained through, through stealing it. You know, Ephesians 4.28 says, uh, let him who steals steal no longer, but rather let him work with his own hands so he can have something to, to give to those who are in need. If you've acquired finances in this world by stealing, of course, you should be gravely concerned. You should repent. You should also be concerned if, if your wealth, your, your finances were obtained through, through uh, compromising your principles through acting deceitfully in your dealings with other people, not working hard. You know, Proverbs, uh, Proverbs 20.17 says, bread gained by deceit is, is sweet, but what does it do? It turns to gravel in your mouth. You should also be concerned if the finances that you have have been obtained through, through loving finances. 1 John 4.15 talks about the, how the love of the world and love of God are, are incompatible. You should be concerned if you've trusted in, the, in yourself and not the Lord. In fact, I turn to Psalm 127. This is a, a passage that some of you need to, to write down and just stick on your mirror so you can look at this every morning. This is a passage that is very uh, convicting for me as well. Verse, Psalm 127, verse 2, it says, It's in vain that you rise up early. And go late to rest. Listen to this. Eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved in in their sleep. Forgives forgives his beloved sleep. Does that describe your work ethic? Anxious toil. Getting up early. I got to get to work. I got to work hard. And it's anxious toil. And then you're up late. What does God do? God gives sleep to his beloved. Some translations say he gives Uh, to his beloved in their sleep even. Anxious toil is not what God calls us to. It's not how God calls us to be provided for. We should also be concerned if we've misplaced our priorities. Haggai chapter 1 talks about people who've been pursuing their own homes before they pursued building God's temple. Uh, We should be concerned if we've obtained wealth, and, and here this kind of brings us back to what we're talking about again. I know I got a little off on a tangent here. We should also be concerned if we have gained our wealth by our failure to give to God. I want to read 2 Corinthians chapter 8, part of it to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 serves as, I believe, I call it kind of the anti-Dave Ramsey passage here. You know, Dave Ramsey talks about get yourself financially secure and then begin to give. Here's what 2 Corinthians 8 says. He says in verse, verse uh, 1, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Verse 2, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. goes on into chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6, he says, The point of this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And, beloved, that does not mean financially, materially. 
He says, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Brothers and sisters, blessed are you who are poor. You're fortunate, you're fortunate if you're seeking your security in Christ's kingdom. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 should be a very powerful, powerful passage for us as we think about when to give and, and how much to give. I believe that God is going to do some incredible things through our church. On Tuesday, we had an elder meeting, and we were talking about how we've, we've kind of finished the, the first phase in the life of our church. We, the first phase of the life of our church was planting and becoming a church, and we've kind of completed that, and we thought, you know, what's this next phase in the life of our church going to look like? We don't want this, this next phase in life of our church to be defined by, by just building a building. That doesn't excite me. It didn't excite any of the elders, just the idea of a, a physical structure. What excited us is we kind of talked about some of the things here in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the, the ability of a, of a church to, to minister beyond its own walls and, and meet the needs of the, the needy. That's an exciting thing. Here's the question that I would encourage each of you to ask yourself. Is God's work in his kingdom, and, and specifically at Bethany Community Church, is it hindered, is it hindered by my giving? That is, am I, am I so consumed with the material things in this world, am I so consumed with, with seeking my own security in this kingdom and its material pleasures that I'm not giving to God's work as he's called me to. Now, I understand. I, I personally benefit financially by giving at this church, right? I'm not the best person sometimes to, to give the message of, hey, give. But I tell you this, you know what? I, I honestly believe this is true. I would be excited about the ministry of this church, whether God called us to be impoverished or as he has, causes us to be blessed with material things. I believe myself, Ben, Mike, Diane, Mark, Kevin, any person who's, who's on staff full-time or part-time at our church would do what we're doing now for free. The greater concern for myself and for the people in this church is the state of our souls. And Jesus says, woe to you who are wealthy. You've received your consolation in full. If our satisfaction is not found in Christ, but our consolation, our comfort is found instead in material things around us, we're in grave danger. Let's look at this next blessing. He says, blessed are you who are hungry now. Verse 21, the first part, he says, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. And that is, presently, your hunger, you're hungry, you're, you're yearning for, for something more. You're going to be satisfied. The accompanying woe is in verse 25, the first part, woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Again, there's a link here to physical impoverishment. We see again that God provides for those who are hungry. Again, that kind of a, that theology of the poor. But we also see in Scripture that, that spiritual hunger is compared with physical hunger. A physical hunger is a picture of the type of hunger and longing we should have for Jesus, for Christ, for God and his kingdom. Isaiah chapter 26 describes somewhat this, this type of, of, of uh, longing. 
Isaiah 26, verse 3, it says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he, he trusts in you. A trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. He goes on. He says this. He says that the path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. Psalm 42, a very, very familiar psalm to most of us. In Psalm 42, he describes the the spiritual yearning that a person has and compares it to physical yearning. In verse 1 of, of uh, Psalm 42, he says, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Uh, blessed are you who are hungry now. Blessed are you who are yearning for God. Because you shall become full. Here's the application that I want you to think about. You're fortunate. You're fortunate. You're blessed. You're happy. If the only food that can satisfy you is the bread of life. A.W. Tozer puts it this way. He says, O God, I've tasted thy goodness. And it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need for further grace. I'm ashamed of my lack of desire. Oh God, the triune God, I want to want Thee. I, I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made thirsty still. Those of us who are spiritually hungry, who long to experience God more fully through His Word, through relationship with Him, we're going to be hungry now, but satisfied eventually. But look at the accompanying woe. Woe to you who are full now. That is, woe to you who have looked on the material things of this world, the, the food and the other physical pleasures, and said, you know what? That satisfies me. I'm content. I need nothing more. Woe to you. Alas, danger. Why? Because if you find satisfaction in these things now, you're going to be hungry later as you realize that these things can't satisfy forever. This past week, Kevin had a lot of nerve. Kevin Souter, our, our intern, he came in and I, I was having a, a sandwich. Kevin, do you remember my sandwich this week? My sandwich consisted of a piece of bread and three thin slices of turkey. Kevin opens up the refrigerator door and pulls out a steak. And it wasn't just like a, a, a puny steak. This was like the thickest steak I've ever seen. It had been grilled to perfection by Kevin himself. And, and he, he, he uh, now he had to microwave it. But still, even as it came out of the microwave, the thing smelled just amazing. I mean, the potatoes and all that stuff. I looked at my sandwich and I thought, you've got to be kidding me. How can I find satisfaction in this when there's a steak? I ate and I was hungry later. Okay. Conversely, whenever we used to, when I was on staff at Bethany Baptist, we used to go to uh, the Moody's, Past, Moody's Pastors Conference in Chicago. And we would, on uh, one night, we would skip the evening meal. Well, some of the pastors didn't. Some of us would skip the, uh, the evening meal, and we'd go to Giordano's later, okay? That big, deep, uh, Chicago-style pizza, okay? Now, I could miss the evening meal just fine. I could be hungry now. Why? Because I knew the pizza was coming later. Okay. Woe. Woe to you who are satisfied with the turkey sandwich. 
because the stake's coming. Woe to you who can be satisfied with so little. Woe, blessed, blessed are you who can only find satisfaction in the bread of life. I want to just read Psalm, a few uh, passages from Psalm 119. As you think about, well, Daniel, how can I grow in finding my satisfaction in God alone? Well, I want you to, I want you to look at a couple verses from Psalm 119, and look at how the psalmist describes his, his yearning and his longing for God, and how he grows in it. Uh, Psalm 119, verse 10, he says, with my whole heart I seek you, let me not wander from your commandments. At verse 15, he says, I will med- meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your way. I will delight in your statutes. I I will not forget your word. Verse 18, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. In other words, the psalmist comes to God's word and and it becomes his passion. And as he gets to know God through his word, his yearning and his delight in God grows ever stronger. And then he comes to this point in verse 14. He says, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. The things of this world, all the wealth, all the finances, all the riches can't satisfy in the way that God can. Blessed are you who reject the materialism of this world and find satisfaction in Christ alone. That's how we grow in our passion and our satisfaction, being full in God. I want to close with a couple things here, looking at a, a an article. Uh, beginning of our time, I talked about how this, this uh, young lady and our culture in general have found happiness in kind of some delusional ways. I read an article this last week by a guy named David Wong. Uh, David Wong has written an article entitled, Five Creepy Ways That Video Games Are Trying to Get You Addicted. Five creepy ways that video games are trying to, to get you addicted. And he quotes a researcher from Microsoft who, whose goal is to get people playing video games beyond the point that they want to. You ever seen that with your kids? They, they're, they're playing video games. You're like, oh, well, you kind of go need, need to go do something else. Like, I don't want to, or I kind of want to, but I, I got to finish this level, or I got to get these points. And, uh, or maybe you've done that. You're playing solitaire or some sort of computer game. You're like, I don't even know why I'm still doing this. I have work to do, but here I am trying to, to get some higher point score or something, okay? Here's what this researcher from Microsoft said. He has like a doctorate in behavioral psychology from Harvard as well. He says what they try to do is they try to combine reward and challenge in such a way that it gets people to continue to play. That is, you, you make it kind of challenging, then you give them some sort of reward, like, a, like, like a, some points on the, the board, or you give them like a little sword as a reward, or you give them some sort of treasure chest, okay? And he said, uh, what they found is that people become so desirous of obtaining that, that little imaginary sword or that digital, those digital points that they'll com- continue to play that game uh, longer, long past the point where they should. And now you say, that's, that's crazy. Why would a person pursue imaginary digital prizes? Get this. People pay real money in order to obtain digital prizes. It's a $5 billion industry worldwide. People spend real money to buy imaginary digital real estate. That's crazy. 
That's what I say. Maybe you say that too. David Wong, who wrote this article, says, no, we're crazy for thinking it's crazy. Listen to what he says. He says, there's nothing crazy about it, Daniel. No, he doesn't say that. He said, after all, people pay, listen to this, he's right. He says, people pay thousands of dollars for diamonds, even though diamonds do nothing but look pretty. A video game suit of armor looks pretty good, and it protects you from video game orcs. In both cases, you're paying for an idea. He's got a point. Do you believe him? Do you believe that a video game sword has just as much eternal value as a diamond? It does. They're both worthless. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those whose computer systems have crashed. And the fog and the mirrors have been cleared away. And they've been able to fix their eyes on Jesus. They said, that's where my security is. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who, who don't have the 401ks. Blessed are those who, who, who no longer have those, those physical things that distract them from Jesus and say, you know what? My satisfaction is in Christ alone. My security, my comfort is not in any physical thing. It's in the person of Jesus Christ, and I'm pursuing him and his kingdom above all else. Blessed are those people. Blessed are those people, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that our satisfaction should be found only in you. We pray that you would enable us to have the, the faith in you, to, to pursue you with our, our whole hearts, our whole life, our whole being. pray that you'd give us the ability to pursue you more fully. We pray that you would strip us of those things that, that keep us from following you. And Father, there are many of, all of us in here live at a, a high standard of living compared to the rest of the world, and, and we're wealthy in that sense. And, and Father, protect us in this dangerous position we're in. Allow us to use our wealth for your glory to not hold on to it, to hold it loosely, to love you with our whole being. We pray this not for our own glory, but for your own. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.